Welcome, everyone, to episode 99 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we're diving into Jon Stewart's sophomore outing with the satirical comedy Irresistible. But before we get to that, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing? How are you uh, preparing for a socially distant 4th of July this year? Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's just going to be another Saturday, I guess, pretty much. Uh, I think we're going to be getting some some barbecue from our our new favorite joint here in in, uh, in Tennessee, this Memphis style um, chain that has sprung up. It started as a food truck that would come to our neighborhood and then it was so popular. He's now opened up a, a brick and mortar here in Ottawa, where I live, actually. So uh, that I guess I have that to look forward to. I mean, nowadays it just seems like meal like a good meal is like that that is the be all end all right there like that is like the one thing to look forward to on a given day like when when i wake up in the morning and i'm like oh what am i gonna like what am i looking forward to today to like break the doldrums of just the same routine if i have a good meal coming then i know i can make it through the day and i mean i've been here at home with my mom's cooking so most of the time i do have a good meal coming which is good yeah no it's uh a good meal. I was going to say, it's it's funny to hear you say that because I imagine most people in Chattanooga don't think like that because they're all living their normal lives. It yeah, seems that's like. true. So yeah, uh, especially that, as that cases spike to like 35 to 40,000 new cases per day in the, in the U.S., today, which is... Today was a record in, in Hamilton County here and where I, where I live, where you're from as well, Scott. Like it was, yeah. it was a record high for new cases. Yeah. And we're, we're now hitting record highs for new cases on a national basis every single day and in spite of what our president thinks it's not just because we're testing more than every other country uh it is because we're being stupid about it so on that note we'll go ahead and, and jump into stupid political things <laughs> uh written and directed by john stewart irresistible stars steve carell as gary zimmer a maybe not so hot shot dc political consultant who at least fictionally worked on the hillary clinton 2016 presidential campaign in the aftermath of that uh election outcome zimmer is looking for the new message that will carry the democratic party forward into future elections and voila one of his assistants shows him a viral video of marine colonel jack hastings played by chris cooper giving a speech at a municipal government meeting in the rural town of deer lock in wisconsin about standing up for undocumented immigrants as well as a host of other seemingly liberal political stances Zimmer immediately jets off to Wisconsin where he hopes to convince Hastings to run against incumbent Mayor Braun in the upcoming mayoral election. Jack eventually agrees to run after being persuaded by his daughter, Diana, played by Mackenzie Davis, but only if Gary will personally oversee his campaign in Deer Lockin. What ensues shows the disconnect between the big city and Washington political elites and backwater rural towns and spawns national coverage for this tiny town's mayoral election once the Republican National Committee sends reinforcements for Mayor Braun in the form of money and Rose Burns, Faith Brewster, a longtime rival of Gary's on other campaigns. Scott, I'll stop there 
And before we get into any spoilers, I'd love to hear your general impressions on Irresistible. Does it provide the expected mix of humor and scathing political commentary that we might expect from someone like Jon Stewart? Or did you find the movie something a little short of its title? Yeah, it's interesting, Scott, because I think that political films can often be hard to review because your political views necessarily bleed into how you you feel about the film in a lot of situations. And I, I think we've seen that in recent years with the film, like, I mean, obviously the one that comes to mind is, is Vice. Um, and the fact that that movie was horrible. Uh, I mean, we both agreed that it, it was terrible. And I, I spoke to people on both sides of the aisle. You can go back and listen to uh, to our episode there um, in which I talked about, yeah, I, t I talked to some of my very liberal friends. I talked to some conservative people. They all thought uh, that, that this movie was bad, but it got good reviews, right? And I think that's because critics, um, you know, it, it was speaking to them, even though it wasn't saying anything deeper than literally the entire message of the movie was, it, it can be summed up in three words, Dick Cheney bad. Um, and, and that that was vice right there. And I, but, but I think that that is the movie that certain critics wanted. And so that was why they gave it positive reviews. Likewise here, I think that um, one of the major critiques that I've seen of this movie is that it is too even handed, right? That it is too both sidesy, I think is, is the term that a lot of people have used that it is, uh, you know, f fair to both sides and, and critical of both sides, I think, to, to some extent. Um, and I like, I don't know that that's necessarily a criticism of the film more, as much as it is like critics saying, hey, this isn't my belief about American politics. And so I, you know, I, I think the movie should have conveyed my belief a, a little bit more. I, at the same time, we're not innocent of this as well, right? Like, I, I think that this movie maybe aligns more with what I politically believe ideologically, or at least believe about the political process right now. Um, and for that reason, I'm probably coming out more positive on it than uh, a lot of critics are. The point is that it's hard to put a lot of stock in reviews for these kinds of movies because a lot of times that they are they are skewed by someone's political views. But I think this movie is definitely better than I expected. I think as a comedy, it works pretty well in, in scenes. I mean, I'm not going to say that I was like howling all the way throughout, but there are some some good laughs. Um, and, you know, especially recently, it feels like that is like a huge praise of the movie that that this movie actually has some real uh le legitimate laughs in it because movies like um the, the lovebirds and uh love wedding repeat that were just going for straight up laughs the whole way didn't didn't get a single one right and i think this movie is a little more of a dramedy i guess you would say uh I, I, probably a little heavier on the on the comedy but still it has it's it's not just straight, straight up laugh fest all the way through, but it does it's have. A, it's a laugh. satirical comedy. It, yeah. I wouldn't call it a drama, but it's it's certainly going for satire and some more serious yeah. notes. Yeah, like but but it ha it has good laughs. Um, at the same time, it also has like some familiar jokes. Like like you, you know when you hear the plot description of this movie, you think. I know exactly where this is going, right? The the liberal, uh, you know, political consultant shows up in the small town of conservatives, and he realizes, hey, these people aren't what I thought they were, and that is kind of how the movie starts out. And, and again, you, you think that's where it's going, and I think you know the the least successful parts of the movie are where it really feeds into that, right? And there's all these jokes about number one, how 
you know, Steve Carell, oh, because he's the DC liberal or whatever, he doesn't know, even know how to talk to these people. Like he, he, it's a complete disconnect. And on the other side, right, like the the people in the town are portrayed as like, you know, there's the the rally or, or the, you know, at, towards the end when they're all getting ready to vote, the like there's black people walking up to the table to like support the Republican incumbent mayor and the, the, you know, the people behind the table are just like taking the sheet away from them. Not like it, it leans into these. And, you know, there's some satire of the news networks, which I think is also pretty on the nose. Um, so, so there's like the jokes that you're expecting. They are in here to some extent, um, but there are good laughs as well. And I think that the movie upends your expectations for sure by the end of the movie. And I think I, I appreciated it a lot more when I got to the end of the movie and realized, uh, look, look, I think he kind of has his cake and eats it too, right? Because he, he wants, at, at the end of the movie, I, without spoiling anything, I think he wants you to to question what you've been seeing throughout the movie. But at the same time, like r what I said, he's not, it, it doesn't mean that he's not getting a cheap laugh wherever he, he can off of these familiar tropes and stereotypes and everything. So um, even though, like he makes a good point in the end, but I think that uh, there, you know, it's only at the very end that he does that, right? And so it, it feels like you are still watching a, a tropey movie um, for for a large portion of the movie. But I did enjoy it, Scott. In the end, I did enjoy it. I think the performances are a little mixed, but I think there are, there are some good ones in there. Like I said, it has good laughs. And I think that what it says in the end is clever, right? Like I think that, again, where Vice... All it had to say was Dick Cheney bad, right? I think this is going beyond that. And this is actually trying to comment on the present political moment. Maybe not, you're not this exact political moment, because I think a fair critique of the movie is that it does seem a little bit outdated, maybe like a couple of years old, right? I think that particularly now when so much has changed in the last few months, um, you know that that it, it there are there are things which are a little like eh, but there's nothing that john stewart can do about that right and I, and I think that even despite that he still gets to an underlying truth that i i do believe is is a truth uh, about the american political process and so i think that on on the whole the movie is successful even if i think it could have been great if not for you know leaning into tropes and and cliches and being on the nose um, like you'd expect at times. But again, I, I come out positive on it. Yeah, I think I might be a little bit more mixed than you. I think that if you just looked at this film through a lens of being a comedy, then I think it's like pretty funny. It like might even be the funniest comedy we've watched in, in quarantine. I'd have to assess that fully prob probably, but I, I think it, it might be. I, I was laughing a good deal throughout. And part of that is just, I mean, but John Stewart is a funny guy. Like the jokes that he makes are, you know, fit my sense of humor and go towards my sensibilities. And yes, he's definitely getting some cheap shots in um, on both sides for sure. But uh, I think that it overall is like pretty funny. And, and I think this is both a compliment and a complaint that if you just had, you know, if you just read this script and it didn't have a title on it, you might think that this is just a bunch of monologues from daily shows strung together because like honestly that, that that's the kind of jokes it's making it's even the kind of narrative that it, that it sews together and i think even the final i mean I, I don't even know if you call it on the nose like breaking the fourth wall speaking to the viewer and, and telling its entire message uh straight to you and, and talk at the end it feels very like you know daily show or last week's night with john yeah. oliver which is which is like look i i'm one of our favorite tv shows is the newsroom and like 
people complain that about that one being you know too on the nose all the time and it doesn't bother me that much and i don't think it bothered me that much other than to recognize that if unlike the newsroom i felt like i'd watched two like an hour and a half of this very a very clear message i think by the end of it like it's very clear what it was trying to do and then have someone just tell you exactly what it meant i was like cool yeah. but why um it's like it's that, like a villain explaining their whole plot at the end that that is literally what happened i mean with yeah, depending on your character. perspective in the yeah. film it is actually the villain telling you exactly <laughs> what happened all if time. you're if you're like most critics then yeah you think it was the villain <laughs> uh, yeah maybe i don't know i think overall the performances are are funny like Look, Steve Carell and Rose, like Rose Byrne, as much as I, I like her probably most for th- something like damages or things like that. Like, she's really funny. Like, she's hilarious in this film. Uh, some of the scenes that moments that she gets with Steve Carell in particular are just absolutely hilarious to me. She licks his face in the diner. It's just so funny. So <laughs> um, and yes, I, I think that she's really funny. I think Steve Carell is is really good. I think he maybe has some weird choices for projects that he does. Sometimes I, mean, I haven't watched Space Force, but I hear that's like an absolute abomination. Uh, on netflix yeah uh, um, and then he but then he has something like beautiful boy which i think he's just, like incredible and so he just has and then he had welcome to marwin which is like a, another total disaster of a film i just like i don't really understand why he does a lot of the projects that he does but i think this is the kind of the project that he works really well for him like like success or failure of, of a movie i think this this project works really well for him because i think he he because he is playing a like a little bit of a michael scott spinoff in this in this character as in like maybe a little bit more competent, but you know, equally sort of like talking down to everyone around him and thinking that he's smarter uh, than everyone else in a, in a lot of ways. And I think it's obviously toned down in, in the more of like, you know, ridiculous aspects of that Michael Scott character from the office, but he, he's playing a version of that. And I mean, there's a reason why people love the office, even though we aren't two of them, like he's good at it. He's like, he plays it well. Um, and I think this more measured version of that plays really well on screen uh, for over, overall, just general impressions of like the, plot like like i said i think it works really well as a comedy i think it's satire is fine like again it feels very even though it's taking shots at both sides like i don't know if you could come up with more one-dimensional satire for most of the film like it's just the reality of it it's like he's making incredibly he's painting with the about the broadest brush with the widest strokes that you possibly could find uh when it comes uh, again on both sides here i think i think like the his portrayal of you know backwater and i'm using air quotes around that like rural communities and how they approach you know, local politics feels very stereotypical and just the way he portrays like liberal. Yeah, they you know, don't elite. even have Wi-Fi in the whole town. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. I just rolled my eyes so hard at that. Um, look at that. That may or may not be true. I don't know, but just weird to put that in your movie, I think. Um, but look like and then going to the East Coast elites there, you have like a couple scenes there and I'm just like, Jesus, like all of this is just so one dimensional. I couldn't find I couldn't describe more one dimensional like portrayals of peripheral characters in, in a film. Honestly, which is like, I think it works fine for the comedic purposes because you don't care about those characters. Like, you don't, like, you don't care about what Big Mike or whatever they are in like Deer Lock in Wisconsin. Like, you don't, don't care about those characters. In fact, honestly, I barely care about Mackenzie Davis and Chris Cooper's character. I find them thoroughly uninteresting characters personally. But um, I think overall what you find is that with these, with these like one-dimensional brushstrokes that he's painting here i think when you get to the end i think it hits you a little bit harder just because it's not you're not really expecting it because it seems it seems like so much of it's going on is one-dimensional and so it maybe maybe you can portray it as it has its cake and eats it too by the end of the film i think that's maybe one way to put it but it certainly lulls you into this false sense of understanding what the movie is and then kind of hooks you at the end i think it's pretty hard to see that coming even though maybe like a good heist movie there's little breadcrumbs throughout that that might lead you along the way if you if you go back and think about it which is an interesting concept but overall i think it would be more interesting if 
the political message weren't just so obvious. Like I think that John Stewart's not like exploring anything groundbreaking with what he's saying. And at the same time, like I think that, and at the same time, I think, well, it doesn't really seem to matter that we already all know this. It, like it doesn't, like it's not getting applied no one's taking it into consideration in, in any meaningful way in society so maybe we do need to hear right on those maybe we do need to get punched right in the nose with that like or it's maybe like green book yeah i mean maybe maybe that's a different conversation and we'll never know because we completely lost that episode of the podcast i think um Did we? I, think oh, our, I think that was our last episode <laughs> it was meant to be that and halloween i think we reviewed that t- those two together i'm not sure okay but, um it, yeah anyway so i i think that overall it's like i enjoyed the film but I don't necessarily know if it's a good film, if that makes sense. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Like, it's not it's not a particularly clever or insightful political commentary, which I think is maybe what a lot of critics are are sort of getting at. But that's okay. Like, I don't think it needs to be right. Like, it, I think it's drawing attention to things that are obvious, and I think that if anyone sat down and critically thought about them, would would know pretty pretty readily. But that being said, as as obvious in quotation marks as they might be, like we're not applying them in society. Like, we're not getting there at the end of the day. And so maybe we need to see it. Maybe we need to see it on screen um, to get that extra kick. But I don't know how many people who need to see this are going to see it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I give it a little more credit. I think it is, you know, I think it is somewhat insightful in the end about, you know, this question. And, and maybe this is to your point as well of like, why did Trump win? Right. And this, this question that maybe there's an easy answer there. Maybe he's offering us the easy answer, but people still don't seem to get it, right? People s- still don't seem to understand exactly the the circumstances that that led this election result to happen, right? And that's how the movie opens with, um, you know, with Steve Carell's character saying, like, there's a 0% chance or whatever, like, Hillary's got this in the bag. And then, of course, that, that doesn't happen. So uh, I, I think there's, there's a little more bite there to what he's saying. Uh, but maybe I'm just comparing really? it to, like, to, to I, Vice I, again, which was just the ultimate in saying. But, yeah, but like Vice, I mean, to your point, like already, like Vice had nothing to say whatsoever. This this film does yeah. have something to say. I'll definitely get like it's saying something. I think what it's saying is kind of obvious. And I, I don't even think it's the full picture. I mean, sure. I think the political pro like the election process being broken, which is also one of what the movie is about. Right. Like that's important. Like we don't get that. No one seems to care that much about it. And a lot of that reason, and I don't know if you, I put this in my letterbox for you, the reason for that is that as soon as like, as soon as you take power in American government, like that system benefits you, like you can campaign all you want as being an outsider going to take down these corrupt systems. But like as soon as you win, those systems benefit you, like those systems of raising money and being an incumbent, they all benefit you in that way. So there's no, there's like some perverse incentives around, you know, structuring the, the election process the way that we do is because as soon as you you know, tear that apart or you take that down, like you're hurting yourself. You're like, that's just the bottom line. You're like, you're hurting, you're hurting yourself. And I think that is one part of, of the equation of like why, you know, Trump may or may not have won. I mean, he definitely like he won obviously, but like, wh- like how much that contributes to that maybe I think is up for debate, but like sure. there's so much more to that than, than what John sure. Stewart yeah. is, is saying here. And I think that, yes, it's meaningful. Like absolutely. In, in some ways it's, it's more meaningful on the microcosmic level of a mayoral race. Right than it is the presidential race because everyone watches the pre- everyone everyone like consumes a presidential race but so much governance ha- is happening at the local level that the the sort of you know the, the trickle down super PAC and money that goes into like local elections is way more insidious in some ways than, than your presidential campaign might be and that's a completely different conversation probably but i think overall it's like it's saying something that everyone knows but no one's going to like do anything about right so i, I don't know like i don't know if it's saying anything insightful 
Um, but maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just because like I, you know, I was like I was in college and like thinking about these things that, you know, in the right, most yeah. recent like spike of all this, like if you're like, 10 years older, maybe it's a completely different argument. I don't know. Yeah, no, that, that's fair. I think I think it's easy for us to sit here and say these things. But, you know, our, our age group might have been some of the most mobilized people in that in the last election. And so, like you said, we, we were thinking about these types of things. Is the average person thinking about them? I don't know. Yeah, that's a fair point. But is the average person going to watch, go out and seek out, watch this movie? I don't, I Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing else out. You might as well. <laughs> well, Hamilton comes out. Well, when this gets released, probably today. That's true. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So I think that's general impressions. We do we do pretty deep there, which is fine. Like I think we're that was one of the topics on my list to talk about, and we can touch back on it if we need to, or we can just skip it when we get to it. But for now, let's switch gears and talk about these uh, performances, these characters. I think there's a couple buckets of characters here but the lead role i think is undebatable like that is definitely steve carell it is this character of gary zimmer scott and i'd love to get your thoughts on this performance you know this this character and also uh maybe how this fits in the kind of performances that steve carell is giving of late i mean i mentioned a few right he's he's all over the place maybe but i know you've seen a few of them and, and not seen some of the other ones and we'd just love to to hear your thoughts on on this performance and how it also kind of fits into steve carell right now and sort of outside this film yeah, I mean, I think that Steve Carell is is one of the the comedians, comedic actors who is also, you know, one of the strongest of, of those who have crossed over to to doing dramatic work. I think he is a very strong dramatic actor as well, and he's shown that in recent years. Um, this role is definitely more down the middle for him, right? Like, I think it's great, it's perfect casting to have, you know, a guy who looks and has the image of, you know, of Steve Carell playing this character of, right, the, the nebbishy liberal guy who uh, comes to the, the backwater town and, you know, doesn't know how to connect, doesn't know how to talk. As much as I d didn't appreciate a lot of these jokes, I do think him sniffing the Budweiser at the, the beginning when he was eating his burger and, and Bud was, was pretty hilarious. Um, but, you know, he, he, he's perfect for that. Maybe there is a little bit of Michael Scott in there. I don't know. I'm not a fan of The Office. But um, from what I what I understand, yes, that that probably is a, is a fair comment to make. So, I mean, I think he is too over the top at times, right? And maybe that's just the script not, not doing him any favors. But I think, like, the yelling, right? Like, it almost feels like he's doing his Anchorman character of Brick Tamlin a little bit at times, like with the, the yelling and, like, um, you know, just be, being really aggressive and loud about certain things and then like, you know, be, being self-aware about it and being like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, like whatever. Like that, I just feel like I've seen him do that shtick before. So, so that part of it did feel a little bit familiar. But again, in the end, I come out positive on his performance because I think he has good acting chops and he is, he is perfect for the role. Like I think that a lot of... Uh, a lot of the good parts of the role come out of the fact that they are sort of knowingly poking fun at, at Steve Carell's image and comparing it to the image of, you know, this, this liberal political consultant or whatever. Like, I, I think that they're leaning into that a little bit uh, on purpose. And so th that makes sense, I guess. And so I, I do come out positive on the performance, even if like, uh, like, I guess I just wanted a protagonist who was a little more of a rootable character. But, you know, as you learn over the course of this movie, like he's not supposed to really be a rootable character. So uh, I think that it works ultimately. Yeah, definitely not a rootable character. I, I think I, I think he, he, depending on your perspective in, in this film, you, you might find it hard to find any rootable characters. I think like maybe you could argue some of the the deer locking people are, are, mm. are rootable, but 
I don't know if by the end of the movie, you've soured on them too. Maybe, I don't know. Like you might just be like, well, who, who is there to root for in this film? I don't know. I, I really like this performance. I think it's, I mean, one of the reasons that I've tried, I mean, I've tried to watch the office several times and never been able to get into it. I don't know how many times I've, I probably mentioned this a bunch of times on the podcast, but I mean, honestly, one of the reasons why is that I just find, especially the performance from Steve Carell and that, and the, well, more so, I guess, probably the character of Michael Scott is just like too, too, too far over the top. Um, and the like l- how ludicrous all of these characters are, like how not real they are just really just, I don't know. I just can't get into it. Right. And so it, again, to kind of go back to what I was saying earlier, I, I feel like this character is like a, at least like palatable enough type of character who isn't so over the top that it's, that it's um, that it feels broken um, as, as a character that, you know, what are you going to do? It's uh, so instead it, it's like a little bit more down to earth, a little bit more relatable, but look, like it's still, I, I hear what you're saying when you say it's, it's you maybe wish for a character who is slightly less over the top, but I think that's part of the satire and certainly part of the one dimensional nature of the satire. I think is creating this character who checks every conceivable, like conservative stereotype of a liberal political consultant. Um, and I don't know. And he's like, he is very dumb too. Like he, he is much dumber than this person probably is in real life. Like, out of touch yeah i mean he's like he, yeah yeah like uh, right i think the, the film starts in a place where it seems like he's going to be a reasonable person and and then it's clear like very quickly that it's is not right like it's he's someone who's you know deeply out of touch and you know you, you see that immediately when even when he's like booking the trip to deer lock you know he's like, like give me a ford explorer instead as like the character like can you get me a sound package <laughs> like and then when he's in like the the bar right like for the i mean there's the obvious thing where he's ordering like american food in a german bar but like the thing where he asked for like a, a room on a high floor he's like well we yeah. have one we have one floor here i'm just like good lord like no like nobody would say that like absolutely no one would say that in that situation which then it is what it is right i still and, and and to that point i think that's the parts that do work right are the things that that people would say but he's kind of exposing how silly it is. like when when they're at the like constituent meeting or whatever and and chris cooper eventually makes the big speech about how like i don't know what i'm doing here i should be back in you know deer locking or whatever with my people but the way that that Carell introduces him as saying like finally we have the man who's going to bring back empathy and and you know all of this stuff to politics or whatever like you could totally hear someone saying that yeah but they don't really like the point is like they don't really mean that right like, those are just talking points like they are really just using this person as a puppet to further their agenda right uh yeah there's and and so they're going to disguise it as talking about hey we got to bring empathy back to politics and you know all of this stuff that no one out there really ascribes to i think no matter how much they bluster about it so i think those parts work right because you can see people actually saying and doing those things yeah, and I, and I even think some of the parts around like the whole like a, like him running the campaign too, like he, even though as silly as it is, like trying to get the cows like perfectly aligned in the background of like the cops, like like I can totally see like like see that happening in real life, like some campaign manager getting really pissed off that they can't line the cows up properly in the background the bit with of the, the shot. The bit with the nuns, I thought was really. Oh my good. god, that was so funny. <laughs> I will say that we'll get to more members of the cast here in a second, but. The the deep cuts of this cast, like there's like randomly like Deborah Messing is in this cat is in no, like, no, the movie. No, no, it was uh, it was Natasha Leone. Oh, that's Natasha it. Leone, but Deborah Messing is also in this movie as like one of the one of the anchors on one of the news stations. Just oh, okay. I can't remember if it's CNN or, or what it is. He she's yeah. she's like one of the news anchors. But yeah, Natasha Leone. Uh, I didn't realize David Duke was a Democratic political consultant because Topher Grace plays yeah plays someone in in, in there as well. Look, so. 
we're going to be talking about Interstellar on our Nolan series really soon. This is another movie where I don't understand what Tur- Topher Grace is doing in the movie, kind of like Interstellar. But <laughs> anyway, <laughs> no, to- to- I mean, I don't know. I think he's like hilarious. He reminds me. Did you ever watch Silicon Valley? No, I didn't. Or any of those shows or. Yeah, well, he reminds me of a character on Silicon Valley that's absolutely hilarious um, for reasons that it would be clear the similarities, but doesn't matter. Uh, anyway, moving on to other characters, I think two of the other characters to talk about here. And you started to talk about Chris Cooper, but Chris Cooper is one of them. He plays Jack Hastings, who is the retired Marine Colonel that Gary is helping run in the mayoral campaign. And then his daughter, Diana, played by Mackenzie Davis, who <laughs> maybe one of the most dynamic actresses that, that we have. I mean, we talk about some actresses playing the same role in every single movie uh, as good as they are. Right. Well, uh, that's not what Mackenzie Davis is doing, because I think this is a very strange prequel to Terminator Dark Fate. Uh, because I don't know if she gets like resurrected in a future life that's or Skynet happens after this film and comes back as a Terminator fighter. Uh, but anyway, yeah, she's uh, she's in this film as, as Chris Cooper's daughter, Diana Scott. And love to get your thoughts on, on these two. Yeah, I, I mean, I th- actually think Chris Cooper gives the best performance in the movie. Like I, I really enjoyed his performance. I thought that um, he again, a, a really, really strong casting, I think, of of this guy who is like, you know, he's, he's homespun. He's a down home, like, and, and yep. you believe him as, you know, this sort of grizzled uh, Marine Colonel a little bit, but like, you can also see him being the, like, again, the guy who is sort of weaponized by um, the, the, you know, the liberal consultant, the, the Steve Carell character as like the voice of the people or whatever, the voice of empathy and politics, bringing this back. Like you could totally see him being like, even though he's really like gruff and hard nosed at times, like he's just naive enough to where like he would buy into that. At, at least that's what you think. Right. Like, I, again, I don't want to, I don't want to say too much, but, um, and, and this is part of the problem, right? I think, and this goes for the Mackenzie Davis character too, is that in the end, I mean, this goes back to my earlier point, but in the end, I really like what they do with the characters. I think it's smart and I like where the characters end up, but the problem is in order for us to get there, we have to watch, them be stereotypes to some extent for you know three quarters four fifths of the movie or whatever and and so in the end we're like oh yeah like i get it i see what he was doing there but it doesn't necessarily change your experience of watching the movie as a whole because again you have had to sit through these parts and just thinking that this seems really bad and cliche i don't know why this is in there i mean i think that's true of the the mckenzie davis character in particular and her relationship with with steve carell's character um, specifically, I think I did not like what they were doing that with that as the movie was going on. I really like what the, how it ended up, but um, uh, again, you have to sit through the the stuff that I don't like for much of the movie. So, I, I mean, these are just some of the like consequences, I guess, of of the story that um, the that Stewart has chosen to tell, and the particular twist that he adds at the end of the movie. Right? I think the consequences of that are that we have to unfortunately sit through some what we think is is cliche and i mean i don't think he necessarily doesn't want that right like i think he is going for those cheap laughs and everything still um but yeah so so i mean i I think that they're both good performances like i totally agree about mackenzie davis as um you know she can she can do a whole lot of things and i think chris cooper like i like that he's having a resurgence right we saw him in a beautiful day in the neighborhood we saw him in little women and now we've seen him in this like three really really uh you know good performances. Um, and I think that he, he's, he's a very strong character actor and I, I think he was well cast here. 
Yeah, I, I think with McKenzie, yeah, I, I definitely hear what you're saying around McKenzie Davis's character. It was, yeah, definitely agree that it was really weird what they were going for earlier on the movie. But is that like, I was really confused. Like, that just feels like some sort of like weird meta narrative on like has nothing to do with politics about like how we show men and, and women. And like, I think though, it, it seems like a narrative or it seems like a commentary on like just dramatic storytelling in general like in movies right yeah. like in this in this type of movie you but expect it, but it seems completely a certain thing to happen between these characters yeah I, I i i don't disagree with that well i i will make one small point about that earlier that i don't know that that necessarily justifies it but um yeah no i, I think what you're saying is right even if i do like the, where it ends up again yeah no i think where it ends up is is fine i just didn't even care at that point right because like what Mackenzie, like what this character of Diana, like puts you through for the first hour and a half of the film. I'm just like, honestly, this character's not interesting. Like, I don't know what she's doing. And it's all good and well that like she gets, I think mean, you get your payoff moment, you know, at, at the very end. But I'm like, but I didn't care about the character at that point. Like, it didn't really matter to me. Like, I thought it was, again, like the relationship with Steve Carell or what they were, you know, sort of hinting at for a lot of the film was, was, was weird, definitely. And, and probably problematic, like border, border, borderline problematic, which of course was probably the point. Um, but then Chris Cooper, I think like, again, like the performance is fine for me. Like, I think it's a good performance. I think that John Stewart, like just asked him to go watch, um, Jeff Daniels in the newsroom and like give basically the same speeches. Honestly, like it felt the exact same to me. It felt like I'd seen the performance before and Jeff Daniels did a, a lot better. Not as snappy as Sorkin for sure. <laughs> well, not as but snappy. As, good, yeah. No, I, no, I think, and I think that's why it doesn't work very well for me is that yeah, it feels yeah. like it, fe- it really just feels like John Stewart watched the newsroom is like, all right, this is what I want this character to be. But, but rather than like this, this like hyper famous news anchor, I'm going to make him a, you know, rural form, like ex military person in Wisconsin. Like it, it just feels like you, he, he's adapted the character, which is like fine. People do that all the time. I understand. But for me, because I, I hold, that character and that show and, and, and really high regard that it just didn't work for me that well. And, uh, I just felt like if I wanted to get those speeches, I'd just go turn on the newsroom. Right. And, and fair enough. Like it's, it's the, it's what you need to use in the film. And I don't think it took away, uh, uh, too much from me, but I just like, again, I think it goes back towards a lot of what was going on here. And, and for the first 90 minutes of, of the film uh, with a lot of the deer lock and residents, I just didn't find that engaging. I think that, had to do in part with just again a lot of the one-dimensional presentation of these people and the very uh one-dimensional political satire that was happening with them at the same time um it it just i think sits on that for a little bit too long um before it it turns on you and asks you to reassess that like i pro like if you know the ending going in and if you were to watch it a second time like i might feel differently right like i might feel that it's a lot more clever or something more interesting but when you're going into it as everyone will, I mean, not everyone, obviously some people will know the spoilers when they go watch it, I guess. But um, when, when you don't know this, the ending of the movie going in, I think that, I mean, for me, at least I just found it really boring. I just found a lot of these characters, like not that interesting and um, not that funny, like the, not the funnier parts of the film. Um, so that, that, that is what it is for me, but like, good. It's, it's a fine performance. And Mackenzie Davis is also um, like fine to good even but uh yeah it's just the the these like local town residents don't get to shine until like the final few minutes of the film here's what i'll say and i mean i think we can get into spoilers at this point but as far as the mckenzie davis character the one the one thing i I guess i do like right is at at the very end there's this 
dream within a dream sequence uh, where first it was making fun of vice. It felt like it was making fun of vice. <laughs> I, I didn't get that, but you might be right. And I like it even more. If so, but so first he imagines that he is with Mackenzie Davis, right. And yeah. they're, you know, together or whatever. So it, it's like, he imagines that he is with like the beautiful, like progressive woman or whatever. And they've achieved the I- ideal that he, he wanted all along or whatever that then that is revealed to be a dream then right he is with the um the woman who is like the runs the Anne. bakery or whatever yeah. in the town right like the uh, and you know he's he's eating the thing or whatever and that is supposed to be like well hey he was charmed by the conservative town or whatever and like he sees the real people now blah 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 um and so now he's he's with this person but then that is revealed to be a dream as well right and the person that he is literally in bed with is Rose Byrne, right? The, the character who is supposed to be the polar opposite of him. Yeah. Um, but actually, you know, the, the, what the movie shows is that they're, they're very similar, right? Because they're, they're both manipulating the system to, to fit their own agendas. And so I think that's clever, right? Because it's, it's turning the idea on his head, like, Hey, yeah. this is what, this is what he thought going into the town. This is what he thought was going to happen. He thought, Hey, a, um, you know, I think I'm going to end up with Mackenzie Davis. We're going to win this victory. We're going to, you know, turn the tide for the Democrats. That didn't happen. Number two, what you thought was going to happen, right. About him being charmed by the conservative town. That didn't happen either. What happened was, Hey, we revealed that these people are snakes and are, you know, they don't care about the people, right. They don't care about either the liberal side of it with Mackenzie Davis's character. They don't care about the, you know, the woman at the bakery and, and her side of things either. They care about the system and the other person represents the system for them. And so they are jumping into bed with each other. So that worked for me. Oh, yes. The Steve Carell, Rose Byrne rage sex is what we were all waiting for by the end of the movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I think that does really work. And, that, and I don't know. It's less frustrating and more just interesting that I think that this movie is like so intentionally trying to be one dimensional for the first 90 minutes and then setting you up right for this like because final it ha- again it has to be to make the ending work i feel like right 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 which is which is a, a which is why i say it's not a bad thing right it's not necessarily it's not a bad conceit to do this but if your first 90 minutes makes your viewer feel like you're just like one dimensionally washing this film over with like political commentary then sure you're going to definitely get your your reward in the last 10 minutes when you show actually you know what i'm way cleverer than that and what I and my commentary that I'm making is what clever that, but it doesn't change that that you made a ninety like the first ninety minutes of the film uh, right. might might grind some people's gears. Uh, for me, less so because I found the comedy uh, funny to to make up for all that. But clearly, with some crit- critics, they weren't too pleased uh, by the end of it. And and a lot of the critics and if we can shift that direction. I mean, w- I guess before we go that direction, do you want to say, any, say anything about Rose Byrne or Topher Grace or Natasha Leone or anybody else? I thought Rose Byrne was hilarious. Like she, I know she's been doing a lot of these like trash comedies, like studio comedies recently. And I guess technically this is a studio comedy. This is a universal like focus feature studio comedy. But I thought she was really funny. Uh, I think she's like one of the better. Honestly, I thought she was one of the better performances in the film, at least in terms of supporting roles. And uh, I think she's great. Yeah, I mean, I, I think she's good. I, I her com- the comedy that they get out of this character is more of the like more like a vulgar raunchy type a little bit that I don't always like, uh, go, go with. So maybe that's why I don't feel, uh, you know, as strong an affinity towards her performance. But like, I think that she embodies the character. Well, she does what she is asked to do. And yeah, I think she, she can be funny when given the right material. I think the, the best scene for her is when she's on CNN. Um, and it ta- basically just straight up lies about, 
being from Deer Lock in Wisconsin. Which yeah, that was really funny. I, that, that, again, that is a part of the satire, which I actually liked, right? The fact that, again, they get into the way that both um, people have manipulated the system. And in the case of, um, or it, the way that both people have messed up. In the case of Steve Carell's character, it's like that they're they're just not even paying, paying attention to these people necessarily and that they're discounting the impact that these people can have on an election whereas uh in rose burns case she's just straight up lying right like that that is basically what trump and his you know wing of conservatism that is what they have made their name off of is straight up lying so it's showing how the process is broken on, on both sides and in particular when you're talking about the conservative side right when you're talking about the republican consultant of rose Byrne. She's just straight up lying because that's what that's what Trump's people do. Yeah, because it, it feels like right, like the I think to, to build off this more, it's like it feels like in politics, there's like unspoken code where like you're going to spit like you're going to enter the spin zone. You're going to like spin things to try to make them sound better than they are. But like there's this unspoken rule that we're just not going to flat out lie. And to your point, like a lot of what's being like, while a lot of what I think this, you know, the most recent administration found successful in their campaign is just like, well, why don't we just straight up lie about it? And see what happens because yeah because if you develop enough about a, uh, enough of a cult around your your you know your personality your candidate people are going to believe anything right and, and in yeah. fact you know there when when anyone comes back at them with like facts about hey this lady isn't actually from deer lock in wisconsin that's going to be like part of the liberal conspiracy hit yeah, job that's to politicizing the person. yeah 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 that's politicizing it then so uh -huh. well well i don't know if we need to dwell too much longer on that but i, I yeah i think I, I get the vulgar humor being more up my alley, maybe maybe than yours. But I thought there were just some hilarious <laughs> scenes between the two of them. You're um, so and, sophomoric, Scott. <laughs> yeah, no sophomore. But hey, I, I enjoyed the sophisticated humor too. It's fine. I'm uh, I'm humor of all types. I, yeah. And I think one of the one of the one of the things this film gets right is that I think it hits different different types of humor pretty well, right? It's like one of the reasons why you like Deadpool too so much is that it hit it decided to not go the Deadpool one route and do only one type of humor right. the, for two hours, and then it it mixed it up a little bit more, and and so. I think that works really well for this film and maybe why it's one of the better comedies that that I think we've seen so far this year. But going back to the point I, I wanted to hit on earlier, we've talked about the political satire uh, quite a bit already. We can touch on that more if you'd like. But I think going towards sort of the the ending here and we, we started to talk a little bit a little bit spoilers, but to go full spoilers and, and talk about that, talk about the twist where it turns out actually everyone in this town was just uh, hoodwinking the yeah. the political elites i don't want to say liberal elites, but like the political elites who are running the country right so you have the rnc and the dnc um i guess the gop not the rnc but whatever um the, the gop and the dnc uh like pumping money into these campaigns for their own gains right like they don't care about the individual towns they're just pumping money into the system uh to, to further a, a larger more national goal with a larger national goal in mind and it turns out this this town of Deer Lockin's really hurting. And so what they do is they set up this scheme and this plan to actually just take money from the RNC and the DNC. And rather than spending that on these political campaigns, uh, which is what they're essentially spending the money on, what they're actually doing is they're actually just pocketing that money and using it to help rebuild their rebuild their town because this town has been decimated by the loss of a marine base. Like talks about their population going from fifteen thousand to five thousand, yeah. a lot of businesses closing. Town's dying. The schools they're they're going to lose their school district. Big point, yeah. Yeah, look, also, like, I feel like I've been around enough Republican areas is that people don't care about public education in, in Tennessee. They don't, they, they care much more about militarizing the police. Let's be honest. I was really disappointed that they, 
that they portrayed uh, people caring about public education that way. Because all of my experience in more conservative areas that public education isn't really a major concern. Yeah, the uh, Midwest is a, is a strange place. Well, maybe the Midwest is different than the Southeast. I don't want to. I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush there. But um, uh, my experience in Tennessee is that, that that people didn't care too much about public education there. But anyway, uh, I, yeah, I found I found this twist ending to be surprising. I'll be honest, guys, it's not where I saw the film going, um, and it it was really effective. I thought, and you know, we've beat around the bush for long enough, right? Like, like I think that setting you up in this way for you know maybe it's for the cheap last maybe it's for what it is, but ultimately it seems like it's so. That it can it can knock you you know knock you off your feet or knock knock the wind out of you a little bit with this reveal about what it was all actually for right and it's this very noble reason they're trying to they're trying to make sure that their town stays you know fiscally viable that they can educate their you know their kids they can provide jobs and unemployment benefits for all these people uh, that don't have work anymore because of you know the military base closing things like that and I, I it's a very abrupt change I mean you can look back and, and see the breadcrumb trail along the way, but it's a very abrupt change and ultimately a very abrupt ending to the film. And so I'd like to talk, hear from you about one, you know, was the plot twist effective? I go out on a limb and say, I think it seems like you think that it is. And two, maybe in more detail, what exactly a, about it works or, or is, is there a way even, I mean, if I'm at South Corner, is there a way that they could have made it better even? They, well, they could have made it better. And this is the one thing that I dislike about it is what you were saying earlier, right? The fact that Mackenzie Davis then goes and spells out the entire thing and what their yeah. reasons are and like ev everything. Blah, blah. I mean, there's yes, even like you, a cue musical note of like, here am I explaining yeah. all of this stuff to you? I'm just like, oh, Lord, could you have it, telegraphed it better? Yeah, it totally is like Daily Show style speechifying for sure. Uh, and so that was the part that I didn't like. But I don't I don't I mean, yes, they, we we need to get out that they have done this to to help fund the town and that we. Uh, you know, that the schools are closing down and stuff like that. I think those are important points and I don't, I don't begrudge them for bringing those up, but it's just the dialogue here and, and the way that she goes about it is very preachy. Um, but what I do like is like, I think that this is almost like an antidote to vice in a way, because I think the, the, the one thing that I hated so much about vice was that the contempt that it had for its audience, right? Uh, and I mean, that was obviously very clear in the mid credit scene, but throughout the movie as well. I think this movie is like the exact opposite, right? In fact, what they're saying is like, the people are not really the problem here. Like, yes, they are to some extent, right? To go back to your point earlier, like it's it's oversimplifying things to say that this is this is all about the money, right? Like, yes, to some extent, the people are also involved in, in why the system has gone bad, but, um, what you know? What what Stewart is saying here, right, is that it's all about the money and the 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 people, but specifically the people, uh, the these uh, consultants or whatever who are who are using uh, the money, you know, with without thinking about the consequences. Like they they spend billions, millions and millions and millions of dollars in a campaign where nothing ever comes of it, right? They they completely lose, and and also like they often ignore these people and. I mean, and this is, I guess, talking more about the the liberal side of things. Like, I, I do think that the, you know, Trump winning was a big, a, a big factor for Trump winning was the fact that this silent majority or whatever, as he wants to call it, I think, in Midwestern states in particular, right? Because those are the states that he was not expected to win and he did. And that turned the election, Michigan, Wisconsin, those, those types of states, um, like, there, yes, absolutely. There are people there who are just like racist maggots or whatever. But also, there are people who 
the only thing that they care about, they don't care about politics. The only thing they care about is who is going to represent their interests, right? And th their interests being manufacturing and, you know, the big in industries and stuff in the Midwest. And, you know, the Hillary campaign or, or whoever didn't even try to, like, interact with these people, I guess, because either they thought the the electoral votes, there weren't enough electoral votes for it to matter, or number two, because maybe they thought they had the states locked up. Um, and and as a result, you know, these people's interests, like Trump ended up being the voice for these people's interests, or he ended up being the person who spoke to them, you know, on their level, um, which again, we, we can argue about whether that's a good level or not. I mean, probably not. But uh, I, I like that the movie does acknowledge that, hey, these people's vote, you may not like them. You may think they're all racist. You may think they're a, are a basket of deplorables or whatever. Uh, but these people's votes counts just as much as, you know, everyone else's. And so you actually have to try and listen to the people, listen to their their interests. And maybe in 2016, if the, you know, if if Hillary had listened to some of these people, if the, if the Democrats had had campaigned a little harder in some of these states, then things would not be as bad as they are today. And these people would not be so racist and bigoted and fired up about, you know, the, the Trumpism or whatever, because we allowed him to get in office. I think all, all of that has been exacerbated, you know, to, to, a, to a power of 10. And so maybe that's a little off track, but I do think that the movie makes that point at the end of, of you know, Mackenzie Davis basically straight up tells Corral, like, look, you, you guys, you know, didn't, you guys ignore us. You put all this money in and we have to, you know, you're putting all this money into a losing campaign. And, and whereas the only way that we can get money for stuff that actually matters, right, our jobs, our education is to arrange a freaking sham election to go to all this trouble to, you know, bring you down from Washington, D.C. That's literally the only way we can get you to give us money for the things that actually matter is to dress it up as part of an election. Yeah. Right. And, and they're not even giving them money for that. They're actually just giving them yeah. money so that they can further their own goals. Right. They're, exactly. they're only pretending to care. Right. That I think that would be the statement. Right. Oh. And yeah, I, I like, I don't really know if I have even more to add than that, other than I think that there's some interesting commentary that I think is, again, I don't know how insightful it is because to me, it seems really obvious that, that like that is one of the things like like being out of touch with you know yes these are not huge population centers yes they, they aren't like people whose you know ideals are maybe typical of of you know the what you think of like this the stereotypical stereotypical liberal obviously but you can't take things for granted right like you can't make people feel unappreciated and expect them to just continue to to support you and vote for you and, and think of you in high regard, right? Like you gotta, you gotta put in the time, you gotta put in the effort, you gotta, you gotta show and prove that you care more than just acting like you care. Right. And, you know, may, maybe even in these other counter examples, maybe they're still just pretending to care, but <laughs> pretending to care, I suppose is better than showing demonstrably that you don't care by not even going there. Um, so maybe it's a stepping stone to something else. I don't know. Maybe the, maybe the political satire here works, whether or not even you even, show face and even show up there right like maybe it works in saying like you come here just for your own end but you're not coming here you're not really coming here because you care right maybe maybe it works both ways or, or it works in both situations i don't know but yeah overall i think it's a really effective last 10 15 minutes of the film it's just uh in contrast on purpose again on purpose it's in contrast to to the rest of the film which it feels rather one-dimensional one and not having much of interest to say 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's uh, that's true. All right, with that, why don't we just go ahead and start wrapping things up unless you want to add anything else in here, Scott? Um, no, I, th- I, th- I think you got it. Cool. All right, favorite scene or moment from Irresistible? Yeah, so maybe we haven't talked as much about some of the funniest scenes, but I probably the hardest I laugh was there's the sequence where the Carell character and his team are doing uh, this like um, focus groups, these focus group sessions. And they're, they're trying, they're speaking to all these different groups of voters. There's like the MAMs or whatever, like the, what did it stand for? Like married adult males or something like that Yeah, um, is, is one focus group and they keep, they keep narrowing it down or whatever. And then they get to like the end and there's just one black guy sitting Walt. in the room. Well, and they're, and they're like, and this is Walt. And they're trying to figure out what is the acronym? What is Walt? What does Walt stand for? And they're like, no, that's, that's it. It's he, it, that's his name. Like it's literally just him. He's the only black person in the town. And I found that funny on a personal level too, because we, uh, my family, has we have a lake property part that we partially own in Wisconsin and so we go up to Wisconsin every other year or so and we always talk about the fact that when we like are in Wisconsin everyone we see there is white like so yeah. I just I just felt like uh, the movie was definitely tapping into something that seemed at least seems pretty accurate to my somewhat limited experience with the state but again w- with my experience with Wisconsin more than a lot of other midwestern states uh, I-, I think I have seen that that that's kind of true uh, so so I thought that was really funny yeah probably outside of Madison there's probably not too much to, to speak of there yeah. oh, and this also speaks to the funny is that I've been in New Hampshire for the last five days or so and I'm not sure that I saw a black person in New Hampshire uh-huh. there so there you go uh, anyway, yeah, Didn't that was a very, <laughs> I did not see Walt. Uh, I was actually talking, I actually brought this point up to my girlfriend who I was up in New Hampshire with, and she said that there might've been a half black family. And I was like, oh, <laughs> close enough. <laughs> no, no. Uh, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty rough, rough going up there. Uh, anyway, yeah. So that was a funny scene. I, I think I, I can't remember if I mentioned this on air or off air already, but I think the, the scene where Faith Brewster first arrives to me is just hilarious. Cause you have this really like in, insidious sort of like exchange and Anne's bakery between Steve Carell's character and, and Rose Byrne's character that uh, concludes with some star- sharp jabs and ultimately Rose Byrne uh, licking Steve Carell's face uh, at the end of the scene, uh, which was hilarious. But there's a lot of good funny scenes in the first 90 minutes to choose from. So uh, it's could pick a lot of them, I think. Uh, pretty funny. Yeah. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. What are you giving Irresistible out of 10? Yeah, 7.0. Again, I think that it was really, really close to being a great movie, and it, it gets there in the end. But again, by virtue of what it is saying in the end, it, ne- it necessarily has to lean into those those cliches in the the first, you know, lar- la- the first large section of the movie. And, and even if it subverts them ultimately, that doesn't, I, I think, undo the damage maybe that their presence in the movie ha- has done thus far. So um, 7.0 is still good. It's better than the critics are saying. Give it a yeah, I mean, I've been pretty honest about it. Like, I've enjoyed, I enjoyed the film. Like, it was funny. Uh, so I'm only coming in a little bit, a little bit uh, lower than you at a, at a six point two. I think, especially if you just go in this purely from a comedic angle, I think you're really gonna enjoy it. Like, I think, like I said, it has lots of different types of humor. I think there's some pretty good performances. Uh, something, something for everyone. I think in terms of performances, probably. And maybe you'll like the ending. Maybe you won't. Like some. Some critics, obviously, we didn't really talk about this topic too much, but some critics think it's a very outdated 
uh, perspective. And and you mentioned you think it might be a bit stale, like a year or two old. Some critics were saying it's like, you know, uh, uh, like an artifact of like a decade ago from a political well, perspective, which may or may not be true. But um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, and I think some of that is what I was talking about earlier, like where, whereas Trump's base has, you know, become so riled up and so like aligned with his you know, ra- racist, misogynist views or whatever, xenophobic, yeah. more, more so than they were four years ago, right? That that any movie now that comes out with a sort of sympathetic portrayal towards like, and I don't even think it's that sympathetic towards them, but to some extent it is sympathetic towards these, you know, people who are probably Trump supporters, right? Um, is going to seem a little like outdated, right? Because we don't really see any positive examples of, of yeah. Trump's work. Like the people that I'm talking about who voted based on their interests, right? Like back in 2016, they voted for Trump, not because of the person, but because of the policy, maybe. Those people are either now worshiping at his feet or they're they're gone and they're not supporting him anymore. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so much about the last, especially even just like the last year, but go three years, even if you want to, right? Is that it's the polarization of everything that's happening, right? Like you're either, yeah. like you said, you either worship him or you probably hate him. Like it's, it's just the nature of the beast. I think with this, with this administration, I'm sure there's some people that sit in the middle, but the vast majority of are going to be polarized on it. And that is one of the horrible things I think we've seen in politics over the last few years. But anyway, uh, I, yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I think that it's probably fair that this, that this feels like an artifact from five years ago, but look, like I sat down last night and I wanted to like have a good time and, and then at the end be left thinking about something. And I think it did that, right? Like, do I still think that, Maybe it's not that insightful. Yes, but I'm still thinking about it. I still think it's if for another reason, it's interesting because yes, it's obvious, but we're like, again, it's still meaningful because as obvious as it is, nothing like nothing's been done about it. Nothing's been done about it. And I imagine nothing will continue to be to, to be done about it. So I think it's interesting enough just to think about that way is like, what does it take? Right. What is it? If this is if this is obvious and if this is true and then if this is obvious, why is it still something I think that's like the next order level of thinking. Right. And I think that that addressing that issue and maybe, maybe there's not an answer, right. <laughs> there may not be an answer at all to that. The reality is that it might be unfixable, but I think that what, what separates this from being a great movie to your point, And I think maybe this speaks to your point or not, is that it doesn't take that next order of thinking, right. It doesn't, it doesn't push forward further into, well, here's something that we might be able to do to fix this problem. Cause I think it's pretty clear. This is a problem, but can we, can we think more deeply about this and, and think about maybe a way to fix it? And I don't think, that the movie offers anything of that sort, which is it's right not to. And I still enjoyed the film in spite of the maybe lack of depth that I might've hoped for on the, on the political commentary side. Yeah. All right. That should do it for our discussion of irresistible. When we get back, we will be talking about at least one big recent piece of casting news, as well as provide another update on the Oscars. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As I teased before the break, Scott, we have a big bit of casting news that I know you were really excited about this past week. And in fact, you wrote about it in the newsletter. So why don't you tell us about it now? Yeah. So recently we heard that there was going to be some sort of a Pirates of the Caribbean reboot that was going on. Um, But actually, we're now hearing about another Pirates of the Caribbean uh, movie, possible series coming that is completely separate. Completely separate. Um, Yeah. 
which is like, yeah, I guess more is less nowadays. Or less is more. I don't know uh, what I was trying to say. But um, regardless, more, more is more these days, Scott. More, more is, is more. more. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think that that is ultimately uh, what what they're what Disney is getting at here. But uh, this new Pirates of the Caribbean film is going to star Margot Robbie. Um, you know, star of the moment. She just had, uh, you know, a comic book film this year with uh, with Birds of Prey. And in fact, Birds of Prey uh, screenwriter Christina Hodson is also going to be writing this uh, this parts of the Caribbean film. Jerry Bruckheimer is coming back to produce this. Um, don't know anything about any other cast members or directors yet, um, but they are going for sort of a female uh, centric approach here. I think I think there's going to be more female protagonists other than just Margot Mar Mar Robbie's character, um, but I think this is this is great casting. I think that Margot sh has shown with Harley Quinn that she could play really colorful characters, um, and so I think like a female pirate, a female Jack Sparrow type would be like right up her alley from what we've seen her do in movies like uh, I Tanya and I mean and Birds of Prey. Like I said, I think she's very versatile and can pull that off. Christina Hodson returning is good. Like I I really enjoyed. Birds of Prey, um, and and yeah, like I, I love the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. It is one of my favorite movies of all time, probably. Uh, this the rest of the series went downhill a little bit, but I think there is still life in it, and I think that probably taking the female centric approach makes sense. Um, and hopefully, the box office numbers will be there, right? Or or hopefully, uh, the they will be portrayed as a successful film. Um, and that, that people will analyze the box office numbers in a much more responsible way than they did for, for Birds of Prey. Um, because I think we've seen like when, when you try, like with Ghostbusters, for example, when you try to set up a, a female fronted, you know, reboot or whatever to a beloved franchise, it doesn't always work out. And I think the Ghostbusters thing was almost set up to fail in a way. Um, but I think that Pirates of the Caribbean probably lends itself more to this approach, better to this approach than Ghostbusters did. So. I am optimistic. I think this could be really fun. Um, I'm ready for Pirates of the Caribbean to give it another shot and hopefully, uh, you know, recapture that magic of the first film and to the second to an extent. Um, and so, yeah, this should be fun. Yeah, I think that you might think that there's still life in this franchise because you spared yourself from the latest entry in the franchise, right? I did. I did not see number five. That is true. Yeah. Number yeah. four was awful. <laughs> I thought there was even a sixth one, wasn't there? Was there? Is there only been five? No, I, th I think there. I think Dead Man Tell No Tales was the fifth, the last oh my one. God, On Stranger Tides was the fourth. Was that the name of the fourth one? Uh, yes, that was the fourth one. God, what a terrible series of films there at the end. Um, yeah, you know, you say that this lends itself better to, you know, a, a sort of you know all female reimagining of it and i think that thematically i think that's true although i wonder if margot robbie will just inescapably be compared to johnny depp for better or for worse i mean look like she's easily as talented if not more talented than johnny depp in her own right but i wonder if it will be caught in this like well if you're not if you're not outdoing captain jack sparrow as a character then the movie's a you know a failure and margot robbie's not good you know I, I can see those conversations already like starting to happen around that i mean i don't see them happening but yeah. i'm i can imagine them and I hope that that doesn't go that direction because, I mean, our podcast listeners will know how big of a fan I am of Itania. And, and you know, we, we both really liked her performance in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, even though apparently the number of lines equates to how important the role is in films. Uh, TBD, if she'll get more than a couple lines in this film, 
maybe Quentin Tarantino will direct it. I don't know. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I think that it's, it's a really exciting bit of news, right? And going a little bit deeper for people who, who care about this sort of stuff, it seems like the speculation around what this movie will be about is that uh, this character called Red, who was recently introduced to the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disney World and Disneyland, might be who this Margot Robbie, who Margot Robbie is going to be playing and who this movie is based around. I don't know anything more than that. It's just some speculation I saw from people who are maybe more familiar with the with the park ride and stuff like that. Uh, but that's what I've heard, which is like, cool, all right, maybe they have some lore set up already uh, to, to tee this one up. But it's very explicitly going to not include any previously um, included characters in the franchise. So there won't be any you know, Johnny Depp. There won't be any Jeffrey Rush. There won't be Keira Knightley or Orlando Bloom. And this one this is going to be completely separate. So I think this is great. I think that this is something that maybe like something like Star Wars should have done a long time ago. It's just have this completely separate, you know, movie that doesn't have any, you know, pre-existing characters. In it. So I feel like people have been like begging for for Lucasfilm to do that forever, uh, but they just haven't been brave enough. So we'll see if uh, Jerry Bruckheimer hey, Productions, well, according to this guy on on Twitter or on YouTube, who apparently has a pretty decent following, even though his name is. And this is literally his name, Doomcock. Um, he says that the st- the new Star Wars trilogy, the most recent Star Wars trilogy, they're going to disclaim it and they're going to consider it not canon anymore. Um, and so, yeah, maybe Star Wars has still got a chance, right? They're, these movies aren't going to count, so it's going to be fine. <laughs> I can't even. I can't engage. It's a legit right thing now. that happened. You could see. You could find it out there. Oh my god! If they do that, that's that's the most pathetic thing. No, they, they're not going to. Again, I, that is why I yeah. started by telling you what the source of this information was. So that Dude, you would, Doomcock breaks all the good news. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I, only, I exclusively follow YouTube, Doomcock yeah. for my for my Star oh, Wars-related yes. news. Of course. Uh, we should just rename this episode Doomcock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, no, I, I... Look, I think this is exciting casting. I think this is going to be really good. Um, look, I... You can go listen to our Birds of Prey episode to, to understand my reservations with uh, the the film overall, but I'm still really excited to see this type of film being made, and I think there is a lot of potential for it. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I think some of your concerns maybe with Birds of Prey maybe had to do with like the universe and everything, and introducing a lot of characters and stuff like that. But I don't know that. I mean, Pirates hopefully isn't going to be having to deal with the same baggage, but I don't know. They're probably, you know, I, I imagine they're they're hoping. What, going into this thing that this is going to be you know a series yeah i think they'll do a lot better if they don't try to make four characters their main characters in the film and don't explain any of their backstories sufficiently but that's just my suggestion for people at disney they make movies a lot better than i do because i've made zero and they've made a bunch um so take that for what it's worth but yeah moving on lion king 2019 but anyway go on <laughs> Very enjoyable musical. Not, um, not a movie, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the so the other bit of news that I'm going to talk about today is more Oscar stuff because we really know that's the reason why you listen to the podcast. You want to hear about the Oscars, even when it's not even remotely Oscar season. And this past week, uh, some more Oscar stuff news came out for the coming year. Uh, one bit of that is their new admissions to the Academy, so people who are inducted into the Academy who now have voting rights, etc. We'll get to that in a second. But one of the other bits of news to really touch on is that we'll see what blowback this gets in the grand scheme of things. But this year, agents will be allowed to vote in the general categories. I can't wait for them to add a best agent category to the Oscars so they can, so the agents guild can have their time to shine. I don't even know how they would even do that. It just sounds like the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. But uh, agents voting for the Academy. Scott, before we get to the other bit of news, like 
does anyone care? What does this matter at all? Like, like, what do you think? Is this any different than yeah. producers? Like, like, like what? Like, tell me. Yeah, I mean, th- that I, th- I think that's a fair point. Like, I don't really know what the rationale behind this is. Like, because it's obvious that they're going to be very biased in voting. They're going to be voting for their clients. But that's um, true of every member of the academy. Right, right. Um, yeah. And so I don't think it's a big deal as as people as big of a deal as people maybe were making out. Like I saw some people who were like really upset about this. Yeah, some lightning um, takes out there, I'm sure. Yeah. And, and I, I, again, yeah, like I, I think that 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 is part of the reason why we end up with such crappy nominees a lot of the time is because it's people Never voting been. for their own movies. Yeah. It, you know, coming out of of their studios. And it, yeah, it, it's all it's all a money game. Right. Like it, it's just like politics, maybe, as we learned from Irresistible. Um, I think that. Um, they're, you know, they're they're doing they're doing better. They're they're trying to to take steps to improve things, but uh, I don't think this is going to be a step that's going to improve things much. I think this is just going to lead to more more slanting in the system. But hey, maybe you know, if if all agents are evenly represented, represented, um, then maybe we can reach some sort of a balance. I don't I don't know. It it just in 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 theory, it seems a lot more problematic than it probably is, though. I guess. Yeah, totally. Like, I definitely see why it seems a little more problematic. I mean, oftentimes these people are being paid commissions, right, to get their to get their clients deals. To get certain... their clients an Oscar nomination. Yeah, to get their clients an Oscar nomination. Like, if their client wins an Oscar, it gets an Oscar nomination. Especially if they win an Oscar, they're making way more money. Just like the actors and actresses will be, they're making way more money on the next deal that gets made. Right? Like, as soon as you win an Oscar, you're making more money on your next project. Like, you're 100 making more money. People have to pay more for you to get them on set, and that trickles down to the agents. So. You can say that's this, that's the same problem with the acting guild. You can say whatever you'd like about that. And I think that's valid, but it's not like the agents are contributing to art, right? Like the argument for like why it's okay for actors, actresses, directors, producers, you know, cinematographers, et cetera, to all be voting for themselves is that they're making the art, right? The agents aren't making the art. You know, the producers even take that, right? Like they're making the art still. Like they're still, you know, approving, you know, the narrative designs. They're still advise the project overall. Like they're still part of the art. The agents are not. And I think that that's where maybe the problem yeah. therein yeah. lies. Do do the agents even understand what like a good movie is? I, mean, I don't. I do. Do some producers understand what a good movie is? I don't know. They probably know about as much as we do. Yeah, I think you could make some argument that some other. Yeah, I mean that that might be true, right? But I I wonder if there are some some people in other guilds out there that don't really actually know what a good movie is either. But uh, well, it's, it's a matter of opinion. The, maybe. the editor's guild who oh, gave the, the award to Bohemian Rhapsody, but go on. <laughs> yeah, go off. Go ahead, Scott. Tell us more about Bohemian Rhapsody winning Oscars. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, look, it's like, whatever. Like it, it, I think you're right. It contributes maybe more to a system that's already slanted. And like at this point, what does it matter? Right. But it probably makes it harder to correct too. I don't know. It seems really weird to me to include agents. Um, because again, they're not, they're not really contributing to the art being made. And it seems like everyone else is right. Like it feels like everyone else is. Um, but maybe, maybe that's a warped perspective. I don't know. But anyway, the other interesting bit of news is that the Academy did release the people who they are inducting into the Academy. I think that's the right word for, it. I don't know what the word they would use, but basically the, the new members of the Academy uh, for 2020 have been announced and don't worry, Scott, they have been able to hit their Academy 2020 diversity goals. Uh, they do. They have hit their targets for uh, women and people of color and other so sort of international international related diversity. So they've hit their targets. They have established new targets for 2025 as well called Academy Aperture 2025 to continue to push towards 
uh, diversity goals because, again, this is just a stepping stone to diversifying the academy base to be representative of the population. But some of the more interesting nominees, or not, I shouldn't say nominees, inductees into this year, Scott, Ari Aster got inducted. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, Matt Reeves, who's directing the next Batman movie. Zach Gotzigan, who's the star from Peanut Butter Falcon. Yeah, I was going to point that one out because that was really cool. Yeah, Aquafina, John David Washington, Cynthia Erivo, Ava Longoria. Is she Ava Longoria Parker? Or do they get divorced? I don't even know. Um, I think they're divorced. Yeah, Florence so Ava, Pugh, Ava Longoria, Florence Pugh. Yeah, of course. Just mention mention the white people. It's fine. Uh, no, <laughs> no Lulu Wang made it in. Yeah, I mean everyone from the favorite made it in, right? Uh, Lulu Wang and you mean this and, very well. That's what I meant. What did I say? The favorite. <laughs> yeah, you're whitewashing it. You're white. Yeah, I am whitewashing <laughs> it. Although Yorgos Lanthimos is Greek, although I suppose it's still white, but a different kind of white, maybe. Um, yeah, but a lot of the international people are there as well. Although I guess technically Cynthia Revo is also in it. She checks every box. She's a woman, she's a person of color, and she's international. So there you go. Ten uh, points to Gryffindor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Ten points to the Academy for that one. Uh no, but I mean, like, this all makes sense, right? <laughs> I, I mean, this seemed like people were making a big deal out of it. I rolled my eyes because this is just a press release to the Oscars saying how they've hit their diversity targets when they clearly are still not up to diversity standards, probably. And the old white men of the the bastion of old white men in the Academy will continue to still, you know, vote, vote for movies like Green Book to win the Oscar. Uh, although Parasite did win this year. I have to give them credit where credit is due. But yeah, no, it, it, interesting overall. I don't know if you have any other thoughts on on these inductees, but some cool names, at least John David Washington, Cynthia Revo. People like that. Yeah, I mean, these people all deserve to be in. I like the, the only one I was going to bring up, if you hadn't mentioned it, right, was Zach Gottsagen, which I think is is really cool. Obviously, he has Down syndrome in real life. Um, yeah. I imagine he's got to be probably the first person in the academy who has, uh, you know, an intellectual disability of some sort. Yeah. Um, but hey, look, like even if they're just fulfilling a quota or you know trying to to you know be performative about it. He's in there, and I think that's what counts ultimately. And so, yeah, uh, so performative think, or otherwise, right? He's voting now, like he's voting on yeah. stuff, and and that vote counts. I mean, so it, it might be performative, it might be for show. He is probably just one of eight thousand people or whatever it is, but it's a move in the right direction, probably. So, yeah, Pretty I mean, I think this is a reasonable step towards achieving the you know representation in nominees that we want that diversity standards or whatever that they're going to be yeah. introducing. Um, I, I think this makes sense with that goal in mind. Totally. I agree. All right, Scott, I think that should probably do it for episode 99 of some like it, Scott. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Wear a mask. It's not about you. It's about other people care about mm. other people for two seconds. Hopefully more than two seconds, but yes, two seconds would be a good start. Where can people find you on Twitter? At Scrubby Dent. And I can be found at, at Shelton2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast at, at Media Plug Pods. Please subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the episode notes. And don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods. Our Patreon has a bunch of different reward tiers for you to check out. And you can receive various rewards depending on how much you're willing or able to donate to the podcast. And we'd appreciate it so much at www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, though, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed as well as subscribed and shared so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. And I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. And we'll be back next week with our 100th episode where Scott and I will be counting down our top 10 favorite movies of all time. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.
vice will not be mentioned. Thanks for listening. Well, challenge accepted. <laughs>